Welcome to futureofuschinatrade.com. This is Molly Castellazzo. You're listening to an audio podcast of a telephone interview with Dan Eikenson, who is Associate Director of the Cato Institute's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. Dan's work at the Institute focuses on WTO disputes, regional trade agreements, U.S.-China trade issues, steel and textile trade policies, and anti-dumping reform. He has been involved in international trade since 1990. Dan and I talked about what he sees as a lack of recent evidence to support the premise of an inverse relationship between the value of China's currency, the RMB, and the size of the bilateral U.S.-China trade deficit. In fact, according to Dan, legislation to quote-unquote punish China for its currency manipulation is 300% more likely to destroy American jobs than to create them. Now, to our telephone conversation. My, so my first question sort of to st- set the stage is, do you think the RMB, whether, whether it's significant or not, do you think the RMB is undervalued relative to what a fair market value would be and, and by how much? Well, uh, I think it is probably undervalued based on the fact that uh, the Chinese government continues to uh, run trade surpluses and accumulate foreign reserves. Uh, and there's a lot of investment flow into China. Um, but so under the current institutional regime, yes, I would say the, 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 the RMB is undervalued. By how much? I, I just don't know. I mean, that's part of the problem here, and, and part of the reason that I think birds are grasping at straws when, when we try to come up with a remedy. That's because you know some economists will say it's 10% undervalued, and other economists will say it's 30 or 40% undervalued. And uh, to me, that makes it implausible for, say, the U.S. Commerce Department to come up with some sort of a, a, a regime to calculate. What the, what the implicit subsidy is in this undervaluation. Uh, you're asking the Commerce Department to do something that economists around the world have been grappling with for uh, you know, about eight years now. Um, but I, I said I think it's undervalued uh, given the current institutional regime because you know China maintains a, a fairly rigid closed capital account. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think that there are, there's, a, there's probably a lot of money in China that would leave China uh, with the freedom to do so. If the capital account were liberalized, I think there would be a lot of capital outflow from China, and, and that is not factored in to most economists' calculations of undervaluation. So uh, that's the reality we have right now. We have this closed capital account, and you know, the current account is somewhat liberalized. Uh, but uh, you know, if we had an RMB that were determined by market forces, and the capital account were liberalized, uh, it might not be undervalued. Uh, you know, there might, it might be overvalued. Because uh, I think there's a lot of money looking to run to the exits uh, because of concern about the future in China, uh, because of opportunities in neighboring Vietnam and Cambodia and India, investment opportunities. So uh, I, I think it's really an open book. Um, we draw on the value of the RMB, but again, given current institutional arrangements, it is probably undervalued. Okay. Now, 
the the idea that there could be if the capital account were liberalized that there could be a capital outflow is is not i had always assumed that there would likely be capital inflows if say overnight the capital account were liberalized right um there is because of assume that there are lots of opportunities in China, mm -hmm. uh, and so more investment dollars go in. Well, um, the, uh, the, you know, China has been growing at double digits, or close to double digits for a few decades now, but there's a lot of thought that it's, you know, might be slowing down. There is a lot of uncertainty about the future. The government is, uh, the party is doing what it can to, to, to hold on to power, and I think it it feels that it you know, needs to have high rates of growth in order to preserve its legitimacy. But in my opinion, and this gets to a broader question, I mean, I think if the Chinese economy is going to take it to the next level, they're going to have to have greater civil and political liberties in, in the country uh, in order for that to happen. And, and, and that uh, means a lot of uncertainty about the future. If there's going to be social upheaval, if there's going to be eventually more parties. Uh, so I think um, there are a lot of investors in China, I mean, savers in China, who are forced to take, you know, 1% uh, interest on their savings accounts, basically to underwrite and subsidize some of the state-owned enterprise mm -hmm. borrowings. I'm sure they would rather get more money on their on their investments. So if they were allowed to invest it in uh, Vietnam or India or the United States, uh, for that matter, they, they might be inclined to do that. So my, my point is that I, I just I don't think a lot of thought is given to the, um, the, the, the countervailing pressures or the impetus uh, for people to to take their money out of China. Um, certainly, we it's easier to bring money into China than it is to get it out. Okay, so that's uh, so so from from China's perspective that just further complicates the issue if they're not only concerned about potential hot money inflows, but they're concerned about massive capital outflows if they, you know, as they liberalize the currency, right? Sure. So, I mean, that, that I'm not, I don't think that capital account liberalization is in the cards in, over the next few years. I mean, anything dramatic. Okay. But if the Chinese want or, or hold, holding out hopes of the RMD becoming a reserve currency, and, uh, that will certainly have to happen. So uh, talk of the, the RMD becoming a reserve currency, I think, is, is very premature, uh, given all of the question marks that sort of linger on the Chinese horizon. Right. So why you, because, and, and I, I understand that, you know, what China says does not always mean very much at all, but you know they've certainly talked about a desire for the RMB to be internationalized, and and, and I I understand that you know that would require liberalization of capital the capital accounts. So why do you think that won't happen in the next few years? Um, because I think. In, in, investors need, or, or business people and investors around the world need to have confidence 
that there's going to be a fairly steady policy environment. And uh, I just I, I don't think that China kind of sort of can, conveys that, that that sort of steadiness. Um, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty. I mean, the economy has been growing in double digits for a few decades, and and there's thought that that's not going to be sustainable. And uh, you know, we, we have a an autocratic system of government where decisions are made by just a few people. Um, and you know, so policy can sort of change on a dime. Mm-hmm. You know, when, you have, when you have a government that's run by, well, guided by these five-year plans, instead of sort of bedrock institutions like the rule of law, and private property, <laughs> and uh, and 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 there's there's a lack of sort of sophisticated capital markets in China. Uh, I, I just don't think it has all of the. Um, the, the appeal it doesn't have the appeal institutionally, uh, or sort of the um, you know sort of the, the, the it doesn't convey enough uh, confidence that the policy environment will be steady and sound enough. So I mean I, I think that is the major reason uh, that uh, that we're not going to see the, the RMB be a reserve currency you know anytime soon. I mean. Uh, I think a lot of things have to happen first, and uh, with respect to political and civil liberties in particular. Okay, all right. And, and I, I asked asked some of the, took took us off on a tangent because I'm also working on on that question. You know, will how soon will if ever will the RMB become internationalized, and what are those requirements? But or prerequisites, yeah. but to get back to the 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 currency issue more specifically, in in one of your articles, you know, you talked about the the evidence backing <clears throat> the relationship between the value of the RMB and, and the size of the bilateral deficit, mm-hmm. and, and the fact that the evidence, in fact, demonstrates. You know, doesn't demonstrate an inverse relationship at all. Right. It, the opposite. Um, but certainly, there's this widely held notion that a relatively undervalued RMB makes Chinese exports relatively less expensive and American exports relatively more expensive, and thereby hurts American exports or exporters and the workers that they would employ. So is that popular notion wrong, or how does that jive with the lack of evidence in support of the relationship? Yeah, I know. I think the the the, the, the evidence exists for sure. For example, um, you know, the RMB had been pegged at about twelve cents uh, from you know nineteen ninety seven until uh, two thousand five. And then between two, July 2005 and July 2008, the RMB appreciated by 21% against the dollar, uh, yet the trade deficit, the U.S. bilateral trade deficit with China increased by uh, 33%. So the, the evidence is there that, 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 this, that what the textbooks tell us maybe needs to be updated. Um, quite frankly, I'm surprised that there hasn't been more focus on this lack of 
correlation. Right. Um, uh, you know, I've been talking about it for a couple of years now. I wrote a paper last year, and then again did more stuff this year. Um, but you know, of course, the, you know the textbooks tell us that as your currency appreciates, uh, people that use that currency are going to import more and export less, and vice versa. And uh, and, and by the way, I, I found that relationship. Uh, uh, weak, not only with respect to the U.S.-China relationship, but also the U.S.-Canadian dollar, uh, the U.S.-Euro, Japan, the Japanese yen, the Korean won, the Brazilian real. There was, uh, you know, the, the dollar depreciated considerably against all of those, all of our major trading partners' currencies. Um, I did the study in the mid last decade, so I think I was looking at the period 2002 to 2005, and. Meanwhile, the U.S. trade deficit increased with all of those countries. So that, that seemed to buck the trend. And uh, there are a couple things at play. You know, one, the, the currency uh, speaks to you know relative prices, but then there's also an income effect. Um, and I think you know, there's uh, less inclination to switch if you're if you're having more income. You know, if, if your income is growing, but the prices of the prices of the imports are getting higher. You might not switch, but the the, the biggest uh, factor I think is, is, is globalization. And in the case of China, which is a huge export processor, as the uh, RMB appreciates, yes, on that face value, at, at that same price, the same RMB specified price, the dollar price uh, should be higher, and we should import less. But because China's because when the RMB appreciates, all of the imported raw materials and intermediate goods that go into Chinese production and assembly become cheaper. So the Chinese producers and assemblers can therefore lower their prices uh, for export. They can lower their RMB-denominated prices for export, which, and then when they send their stuff to the United States, export the price to the United States, U.S. consumers see basically the same price. Gotcha. There's no change in price. So I think that has a lot to do with what's going on with China. Um, you know, about 50% of the value of U.S. imports from China is Chinese value. Um, the other half is value from other countries. So, you know, the, any appreciation of the currency is sort of uh, mitigated on the cost side. But that doesn't explain what happens on the export side, though. So on the exports, uh, when I looked at that period, 2005 to 2008, exports did increase, as you'd expect. And that's, you know, a, that's a good result, uh, certainly from policymakers' perspective. But interestingly, it didn't increase. It was increasing at a decreasing rate okay, each year. That the, 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 we forget what the numbers were exactly. But we, you would have expected much larger uh, U.S. exports than we actually saw which suggests that there's something else going on. Uh, you know, maybe there's, you know, uh, uh, you know, strong preferences in China for Chinese products or products from elsewhere that dissuaded consumers or producers from buying, you know, the now cheaper U.S. exports. Because the, there was export growth, but it wasn't as, as significant as we would have expected. So I think we need to look at the, the relationship. Instead uh, so of just assuming that the relationship and, and, and currency and trade flows is what the textbooks tell us, we need to mitigate and we need to compensate for that with the fact, by the fact that, you know, that we have these 
reasons. Okay. Now, what about the idea that even if American exports are, you know, with all the caveats that you mentioned, even if they're relatively less expensive, they're still on, you know, in absolute terms, far more expensive. So, you know, buyers in China and, and other markets where, um, you know, American and, and Chinese exports compete, Chinese exports are still much less expensive, even if they're a little bit more expensive than they would have been because the currency is appreciated. Is there, I mean, does that come into play too, that there's just such a huge um, absolute price gap because of, of labor costs or, or, or subsidies or whatever else might be affecting the cost the, the final goods cost. Uh, so in other words, you're suggesting that um, that uh, the, the price the price the price of U.S. products the prices of U.S. products to Chinese consumers are already quite high and are, are start off at a very high level and that when when the, when the dollar appreciates against the the RMB it makes it more affordable to the Chinese but not still not very affordable to them. Exactly. Yeah. No, I think that that is uh, a possibility. Uh, but, you know, I think, you know, a lot of what we produce, export, is, they're not really consumer goods. <laughs> you, know, you know, people talk about how they go to Walmart or Home Depot or Best Buy and everything says made in, China, made in Vietnam. Well, the fact is that's, that's kind of true. I mean, it, it, U.S. manufacturing is still well and producing a lot of value, but we don't really sell anything, but you see it on retail store shelves. So, um, you know, we, set, we, we produce a lot of chemicals and pharmaceuticals and components for airplanes and, and airplanes themselves and, you know, technical textiles. So products that consumers don't really buy. So, I, I mean, I think the, a lot of U.S. exports to China would probably be, you know, intermediate goods. Um, you know, purchased by by, by, by producers, uh, and I, I don't know exactly why. I mean, yes, there wasn't there was an increase in exports, but it just wasn't as as, as large as expected. Maybe uh, the the effect that you allude to comes into play, uh, but I just can't think of a whole lot of U.S. made products on Chinese retail store shelves that, that except you know maybe like food products. Okay, right. So are you... Yeah. So, well, and I mean, a lot of those, those food products brands are, you know, maybe they're U.S.-based or U.S. headquartered companies, but they're making their products in China for consumption in China. So you talk about the study that you did in the, what, mid-2000s that sounds like a pretty comprehensive look at the mechanics of all of this. Have you done, are you aware of anything done more recently than that? No. Um, 
only in the sense that it looked at our major trading partners and mm-hmm. looked at what happened to the currency and, and what happened to the trade flows, but it, it didn't really decompose it. Uh, and, uh, you know, it didn't grasp for alternative <laughs> explanations. I just, uh, it, uh, it was, um, I think I was getting ready to start working on a couple papers about globalization and global supply chains. And so I was looking at this and it sort of struck me. And uh, so I didn't look, uh, look at all the details and the mechanics and how it works. Okay. Uh, but yes, I think, you know, there is, there is a growing recognition that, you know, that, uh, that the exchange rates don't have the same effect that they once had. You know, people used to think in terms of trade in terms of us versus them, you know, our producers against their producers. In fact, policymakers still do think that way and have to, you know, uh, lots of opinion leaders. Uh, but, but, but the fact is we do have these global supply chains which, you know, tend to mitigate the impact of, of currency and that, that's a fact that the World Trade Organization has uh, kind of undertaken this project called Made in the world. You know, I had a paper a few years ago called Made on Earth, and they, mm-hmm. they decided to go with Made in the World <laughs> to, uh, to evaluate. Uh, basically, I think the point of it is not so much to evaluate trade flows, but basically to drive home the point for domestic policymakers that um, the imports aren't bad and that, you know, currency is, uh, is not. Is, Currency manipulation or intervention is not um, such a dramatic thing because there are so many ways that this is all filtered out through these global supply chains. I think that's why the World Trade Organization is doing that because they, they were thinking that there was going to be this backlash toward protectionism um, if uh, people got uh, too aroused about uh, uh, undervalued currencies. Yeah, so... so- it it does seem like when you know the the with the economy what it is and and the election cycle heating up that policymakers elected policymakers in the US are are looking for a scapegoat and that China is a convenient scapegoat and that trade with China is easy to point to and vilify and say China is stealing american jobs so to to me it seems it, it's easy to see why policymakers do that, and at least last year it seemed like I, I mean you know the the current last year's currency bill didn't go anywhere, um, but what do you think? What are the chances that either the current currency bill or one like it? would actually pass and, and really have the kind of, of damaging consequences that you, you talk about? Well, uh, to, to be honest, I mean, I, I, I the, 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 the currency bill that passed the Senate and that is, you know, on hold with respect to the House mm-hmm. is a very circuitous way of trying to compel China to, to do something about its currency. Uh, the reason I say, well, first of all, I, I sort of made the point that the legislation is more 
them. Mm-hmm. And I talked about you know the lack of relationship between the, the currency value and trade flows. And then I, uh, I'm sorry, the currency value and the bilateral trade deficit. And then I talked about the lack of expected correlation between the, the deficit and jobs. You know, as, as, as the trade deficit, as in years when the trade deficit expands, we create jobs in the United States. When the trade deficit contracts, we, we lose them. And uh, so I said, by passing this legislation, you're really just provoking the Chinese. And the Chinese have a domestic audience to assuage as well. Right. They, need, they, don't, they don't want to be seen, you know, cow-cowing to the, to the United States. They're likely to dig their heels in. Uh, and they're likely to retaliate, as they did when we imposed the duties on tires. Yeah. And if they, if they retaliate, that's likely to take jobs away. Meanwhile, where are the new jobs coming from if there's no correlation? First of all, the Chinese aren't going to respond. And secondly, if, even if they did respond, it would do it in a bilateral deficit. And even if it did something in a bilateral deficit, it would create jobs. Um, so, uh, the, uh, see, I forgot what your question was. Well, so, yeah, so, so the question is, you know, despite sort of the, what you've described is the reality of the situation. I mean, well, is it likely that policymakers would actually, you know, that the House would pass it, that the president would sign it, or, or that it would get, get written into law? Okay. Well, now, now this bill, again, the one that's before the <clears throat> Congress now, the funny thing about it is that uh, it, what, what, what I like about it is that policymakers are at least thinking about our WTO obligations, and they're saying, you know, we, we have to make sure that we comply with the rules, and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem is that, that, that in order to, this legislation promises to impose punitive duties on the Chinese uh, through the anti-dumping law and the countervailing duty law. Mm-hmm. And under those laws, and those laws have their own statutory requirements, and the requirements are that you, you, you bring that an industry files a case on behalf of a majority of the industry and that the U.S. International Trade Commission finds dumped imports that are causing injury or subsidized imports that are causing injury to the domestic industry, then duties are imposed. And that process takes over a year to, from the initiation of a petition to the uh, imposition of duties. It's over a year. And even, but even before the, 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 those cases can be initiated, you need the U.S. Treasury Department to come out with the, the, you know, the currency practices report, which is semi-annually, twice a year. So the next one comes out in April or May. And then once a, a currency is deemed to be fundamentally misaligned, there's a few months of negotiations, and then, then you get put into another basket, like really super hard fundamentally misaligned, like the worst offender. And then there's more negotiations. So in other words, I, I couldn't see a dumping case or a, a countervailing duty case being brought. If the legislation were passed today, I don't see duties being imposed for two years. So, uh, so I, that's just to criticize the, the legislation. So that, that just affirms my view that this is all for show. Okay. Okay. That, if they really want to do something, they would be, if it was an economic problem, they would, they would figure out a way to do something. Uh, do I think that the House would pass it? I mean, I, I think if Boehner brought it to the floor for a vote, it would pass. And there's pressure on Boehner to bring it to the floor for a vote. Mm-hmm. And uh, so far, he's, you know, said that he thinks it's a bad idea. Uh, 
And uh, meanwhile, the administration has not real. The administration has said, we don't like this bill. We like it's, uh, uh, what it's trying to accomplish, but we don't like the bill because it violates our public obligations. The question is whether Obama would sign it if it passed the House. And, uh, you know, typically, presidents, the White House, sees things differently than Congress. You know, Congress tends to engage in this protectionist rhetoric and, and, and toys with the idea of imposing duties, whereas the president thinks, you know, on a bigger picture, uh, in terms of the effect on the relationship and the international geopolitical implications and things like that. And so I don't think the administration really wants to do this, but I, I given my uh, interpretation of three years of the Obama administration, I don't see them vetoing it. I wouldn't see them vetoing it. They would sign it because they don't, they don't want to buck the trend. Okay. So, so then the question is, you know, even if there's still a very circuitous and, and long path to actually imposing, say, countervailing duties, um, would si- simply the passage of the bill and, and you know, the president signing of it, would that provoke retaliation, do you think, from China? Or would they wait know. to see, you know, wait till any kind of countervailing duties actually came came down the pike? It's, it's hard to tell. I, I've noticed that the Chinese have reacted to perceived slights, to perceived U.S. protections, even when U.S. actions comport with the rules, you know, mm-hmm. under the WTO rules, we can impose duties under Section 421 or anti-dumping or countervailing. And whenever we do that, the Chinese seem to react like this is the end of the world. Um, uh, but so I, I, uh, I think they would probably launch a challenge of it at the WTO, saying, "Look, this violates uh, the agreement on subsidies and countervailing measures. It violates the anti-dumping agreement uh, without retaliating." So basically, they're bringing a case to the WTO and, and wanting the WTO dispute uh, 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 settlement body to 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 cast uh, its to to deem the legislation to be violative of the WTO agreements. But in the meantime, they wouldn't retaliate because there's been nothing done to them yet. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, uh, and, then, and as you said, they might wait until the first case, and then they would retaliate. But the other school of thought would be, you know, the action that the U.S. would do this with China being the main target in mind might be enough of an affront for the Chinese to, to you know, push back uh, and, and do something retaliatory. I, I don't know exactly how, how it would go. I, they certainly wouldn't be entitled to retaliate. Uh, they, certainly, they wouldn't even be entitled to retaliate if we started to impose duties. Uh, they would have to really go to the WTO and have the WTO indict uh, uh, the, the, the U.S. measures. Right. Well, so it, it doesn't sound like from where you sit the sky is falling for an, any of the reasons. That the sky is falling because of China's quote-unquote currency manipulation. That the sky is falling because the you know, the currency bill will certainly invite re- harmful retaliation. I- is that a fair assessment of your point of view? Yeah. My, 
I would say that if the U.S. imposed these duties, imposed, this legislation passed, there's a pretty good chance the Chinese would re, would retaliate. There's, there's a chance the Chinese would retaliate then. There's a, certainly a much better chance they'd retaliate if we imposed duties, and, and that would be the problem. There's a spark a trade war. That depends on how the United States reacts to what China does. You know, it's the, it's the third action that would constitute whether or not we're headed toward a trade war. I don't, I don't think we would be. What, what concerns me most about the dialogue and the relationship is that, you know, every two years when there's an election, there's a lot of China bashing going on. Some of it is deserved. Some of it, you know, China is not playing by the rules, playing by the rules. But there's also a lot of um, unsubstantiated allegation. Um, there is a lot of hyperbole. And I worry that that is really driving the public attitude toward China. I mean, the majority of Americans fear China's rise. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and, you know, we conflate the economics with the geopolitics. And uh, I'm just worried that we are talking ourselves into, a, into an alley where the only options for U.S.-China relations, you know, five, ten years from now is, are going to be uh, bad options. Serious economic sanctions, trade wars, or worse. So, I think we need to. You know, we, we we've lost our mojo ever since uh, the the recession. You know, we've emerged from the recession with low, slow growth, high unemployment, heavily in debt, a lot of that debt owned by the Chinese, and China's still on that same high growth trajectory. And uh, we're worried that, that, that we're falling behind. And if you really look closely at it, that's not that's just not the case. Uh, I mean, certainly China has some accolades that are uh, worth noting, but the fact is that together we can grow the pie. It's not us versus them, uh, and that, that's, that's the mentality, unfortunately, that's taking hold in Washington and around the country, that it is us versus them. We need to head that off as quickly as we can. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I mean, that, while at, at futureofuschinatrade.com we don't, you know, take particular positions on the issue per se, certainly our position is that trade can be mutually beneficial and that by sitting down at the table together and, and you know, having a conversation about, um, you know, gripes or, or issues that, that one side or the other is having, that that's really the productive way to ensure that trade is, in fact, mutually beneficial and that it, it grows the pie for everyone. So. No, I think that's right, and, and, and I think if there are problems, though, you you take the problems on, a, on an individual basis, and, and you, you, you go through the channels that, that have worked, like, for example, the WTO. I don't think Congress acting unilaterally is, is going to uh, produce uh, any real positive effects. I think it, it can only make things worse. Um, so, you know, we've, we've brought, in many cases, we've brought the Chinese the, the WTO on, I think, nine cases now. And uh, the ones that have been adjudicated have been adjudicated to, to the, you know, on the side of the, of the USTR's position uh, for the most part. So, there are, in other words, there are other channels that, 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 that seem to be working. Uh, but there are areas where we should be bringing, bringing more cases against the Chinese. Uh, you know, with respect to indigenous innovation and uh, export bans and things like that. So, I think by focusing on the currency, we're, we're uh, 